I'm Tegan. And I'm Eric. This is the Professional Weaver Podcast, where each week we have discussions with weavers and the supply chain that supports us with hopes to build depth, transparency, and connection within the hand-weaving community. This week's episode was sponsored by Comfort Cloth Weaving, a company specializing in heirloom-quality handwoven products for the home, as well as yardage for the fashion and accessories industries and value-added products for farmers and wool growers. Find out more at comfortclothweaving.com. This week, we have one quick announcement. We wanted to give a shout-out to our first patron of the podcast. Thank you to Susan for the support. If you would like to support the podcast, you can go to proweaverpod.com slash support to make a one-time or monthly support contribution. Have questions about weaving? Send them to hello at proweaverpod.com, and we will have many episodes dedicated to answering those questions with our podcast guests. This week, we are talking with Gail Perinello of the Cornwall Yarn Shop in Cornwall, New York, and president of the board for the Hudson Valley Textile Project. Gail started her yarn shop in 2004 with the intention of offering locally produced yarn, but at the time she was disappointed in the offerings that were available. That fueled her passion to create connections in our local supply chain that eventually developed into the Hudson Valley Textile Project. Now her store and many other places proudly carry Hudson Valley yarns on their shelves, bringing our supply chain closer together and sharing their stories. The Hudson Valley Textile Project recognizes, celebrates, and supports a sustainable model for regionally sourced, processed, and manufactured fiber products. While members may work independently, their communal action is in support of a farm-to-fashion fiber chain that supports local growers, processors, artisans, manufacturers, and consumers. Gail also has a podcast called Common Threads. There you can listen to stories and perspectives from all different people in the fiber supply chain. She highlights the many aspects of the regional textile economy in the Hudson Valley region. Through the Hudson Valley Textile Project, we've been able to source wool yarn that we then make value-added product for farmers. This has been an eye-opening organization to be a part of, so if you're interested, please visit their website to support or become a member, hvtextileproject.org, to learn more and sign up. It has been really exciting to see all the different aspects of the local supply chain come together and make beautiful products that support each other. We hope that you enjoy our conversation as we talk with Gail about her connection to fiber, the vision behind the Hudson Valley Textile Project, and the experiences she has had in building connections within the local fiber community. We started talking to Gail about her yarn shop and what led her to founding the Hudson Valley Textile Project. I own the, the Cornwall Yarn Shop in Cornwall, New York. When I started, you know, knowing that we were going to talk a little bit forced me to go back and look at the timeline because I'm horrible. I mean, I don't even know how many years we've been married, which always irritates my husband. <laughs> <laughs> because it just, I don't know, time is just this funny thing that just happens so you forced me to go back to look at the timeline and i opened my shop you know i've got to look because i can't remember anything i think around 2004 i mean oh i don't know where the time i don't know where the time went i really don't and that's already after i had done 
many other things. And um, when I opened the shop back then, I grew up on a farm. So I always, you know, when I just, after I had worked with my husband and before that had, I was a nutritionist. I had, you know, a master's degree in nutrition. And I mean, this is back in the dinosaur age. Um, I really wanted to have a piece of my shop be from the farms. Mm-hmm. And there was no wall back then that I could get. I mean, I went on different farm tours. I visited different makers. And there really wasn't anything out there that I could include in my shop. So it was kind of disappointing. So then I just tooled along in my shop with commercial yarns for many years. And then uh, I started making some connections. (laughs) And uh, so my... It's not my whole shop, but I do have a piece of New York State and the Hudson Valley in my shop now. And um, so that's kind of where I am. And I I named my shop Cornwall Yarn Shop because I didn't want any little sheepy names or any funny names because I wanted people to know where I was. Yeah. And I didn't plan on moving. (laughs) Yeah. It's, It's kind of like you're reclaiming the space. You're saying, I'm from Cornwall, this is the shop, and this is the place to come to. Exactly. And it's not, I don't want people to think, oh, where was that little cute you shop? Right. <laughs> There's been confusion with my shop over the years with the Cornwall Yarn Shop in the UK. Oh, that's and so that funny. Was, yeah, and, that, and I had made connections with, her, with the girl that owned it way back when, but one of my customers had emailed me in total distress way back, I don't know how many years ago. Oh my God, you're closing. My husband saw it online. I'm not closing. And then, you know, a little bit later, she said, oh, what a dork. It was the Cornwall Yarn Shop in the UK. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. And then I made connections with her and uh, I had planned a trip to that part of of the UK, of England and um, and then she became sick so but we used to email back and forth and send each other things back and forth it was kind of fun yeah sweet yeah yeah so so yeah so then um, so then how, really, oh go ahead no I was just going to say probably the next step is to uh, how I started with my New York yarns yeah yeah. And uh, Taki had a yarn that was, I think it was called Saratoga. And I really liked it, but it was a little bit pricey. You know, with the supply chain, every time it goes through someone's hands, the price goes up because everybody has to make something. Right. And then it disappeared. And I was like, oh, I really like that yarn. And oh, it had Hudson Valley roots. Wait a minute. I think I saw an article about where this yarn was milled. And I made a cold call to Mary Jean Packer. Oh, nice. <laughs> Batten Kill Fibers. And I said, no. And she said, well, you know, I happen to have some here that was made and it was never sold. And do you want it? And I was like, yeah, let's work out a price. And she said, we worked out a price. And she said, I said, I'll send you a check. And she said, no, I'll send you the yarn. And we kind of trusted each other from the very beginning. And that's how it started. 
Nice. And then um, she threw a few other things under my nose. And that's how I started a, a kind of a, a casual label called Hudson Valley Fibers, which I still have, and she still makes yarn for me. Um, and it is mostly uh, yarn from the Hudson Valley, sourced in the Hudson Valley, as much as, as can be sourced in the Hudson Valley. That's cool. And, yeah, yeah. So, so that's how, what I'm doing with that. Awesome. So how did this relationship kind of develop into the Hudson Valley Textile Project? Was this kind of the catalyst of what gave you the seed idea? Kind of, well, yeah, because now I could see, oh, I do have this connection in the Hudson Valley. There is this supply chain. And I had I had, had different events at the shop and, and gone on different knitting kind of events myself and, and tours. And I had a group of customer friends that wanted to do a, oh, a, kind of a little retreat. But I wanted it to be a retreat that was all Hudson Valley. I wanted Hudson Valley food. I wanted Hudson Valley. I wanted everything Hudson Valley. So I said to Mary Jean, I don't know, we were probably at a show or something together. And I said, you know, this is what I want to do. And she looked at me and she said, you know, this is the Mary Jean vortex I always tell her about. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you've been caught in it too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're not talking, you're talking about two separate things, honey. Oh, look at her. And she said, you're talking about a retreat, but you're also talking about a summit. And I probably kind of screwed up my face at her and said, huh? And because I think she was also saying that she could get me into a plan that she had separately. So that was how our first our first meetings were born and I'm trying to think, you know, you've, again, you've made me look at the timeline. So I'm thinking this was probably maybe 2015 ish. Mm -hmm. And, uh, she said, there was, we talked a lot about it and she said, you know, let's find other people that are of like mind. So we got a weaver, we got a farmer, we found an educator and we started meeting at a diner in New Paltz okay. and just kind of planning, like, you know, what can we do together? And that's how the textile project was born out of the diner in New Paltz. Nice. <laughs> and then we uh, became um, a non official not-for-profit in 2018. So in the scheme of things, I think that was pretty fast for that kind of organization to happen. But in the meantime, out of that group of five, we decided, well, let's have a summit, but let it be by invitation only Mm -hmm. to see if these people, if there really is an interest to do this. And I think we sent out maybe 35 invitations to people that we thought would really, you know, not, not only like, but really kind of, you know, want to work together. And we had to turn away people because we had a space that was donated to us that wouldn't fit that many people. But I don't know. We had close to 50, 60 people at our first summit. I mean, we really packed them in. Oh, wow. And, and we had a small grant from um, 
uh, Hudson Valley Ag Development or Mid-Hudson Ag Development. I always get all of these names confused. <laughs> like I said, my memory is really bad. But um, that was our first summit, and we had uh, some uh, – Crystal Moody from Fibershed came from California to talk to us about Fibershed and talk. And then um, then we had our second summit the following year where I think that's where I met you guys, maybe yep. the second summit. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that was like, it's amazing how things happen because uh, I think you sat down with Kathy and yep. you were the only one that was interested. You were the only two that sat down and well let's do some internet social media kind of things and but that was really good probably because it was just you guys that something really happened yeah and uh, then we had a summit last year in new paltz and we outgrew that space yeah mm-hmm. and uh, trying to think we our keynote speaker last year was uh Lady Sheepshear, um, yes. Stephanie Wilkes from California. I mean, she was fabulous. And then we were planning our next summit. Took us a while to find a space big enough, and we were going to have it over Columbia Green. And Clara Parks was going to be our keynote speaker, which was really exciting. And then the pandemic. <laughs> the all the all consuming pandemic. <laughs> yes, exactly. So it's been quite a process, but. A lot of good things have happened out of these connections. I think that's the most important thing that's happened. It's not only the supply chain connections and how it's growing in in the area, but it's just kind of personal connections and our community has grown. Yeah. Um, We have a long way to go in a lot of ways, but I know one of the very first things that I did was – again, uh, along with Mary Jean. But one of the things was, we have so much fiber that gets thrown away. And this is one of the farmer's comments because it's too short. It gets, it's too short to, for, to send to the mill. Uh, why can't we do something with it besides compost with it? It's good fiber, it's just too it's, short. Right. Yeah. And uh, I somehow I saw a felt loom someplace and it was like, oh, that's a very interesting machine. That could do something with all these short fibers. And Mary Jean and I were going to a, a trade show in Ohio. And I said, oh, on that trade show, when we come back, if we're going in this direction, can we stop in Kentucky and see a felt loom? I really want to see it. And that was where they're made. And then we kind of rerouted coming home and really drove through Kentucky because she wanted to visit some hemp people mm-hmm. on one on the western side of Kentucky and I always wanted to go to the eastern side of Kentucky and in between was the bourbon trail. Yes. <laughs> That's the so way to do we were, it. We had a great trip and then I ended up buying a felt loom and then of course the felt I make is so um, I don't know it's thick. It doesn't have to be thick, but it's not like uh, craft felt. You can't right. just cut it with scissors. It's 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 dense. It's tough. Yeah. 
So then I needed a die cutter. And then I need dyes. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's kind of like, oh, I need a loom for this. Oh, I need a loom for that. I need, I need, you know, and mm-hmm. you kind of have to cut it off. But um, oh, yeah, we we know that's a dangerous game. It is a dangerous <laughs> yeah. game. Yeah, you know, and I have something waiting for you guys in the back of my shop. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yes, I I heard. I saw. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so and what's interesting with the felt loom is that, you know, I have made felt sheets for farmers mm-hmm. from their their excess wool, their short fibers, their roving that they don't have made into yarn. I've made um insoles for some of the farmers because i have a die cutter that i do insoles that i can make insoles that are um the one size fits all kind of thing you cut it down because eric made the made the pattern for me (laughs) (laughs) and actually i have another order coming in that i for that so um cool yeah it's that whole supply chain and keeping it hudson valley i love it i absolutely love it yeah what are what are some of the special features of the Hudson Valley? Because I know that on the podcast we keep bringing it up, like how cool it is that the supply chain is getting connected and we're meeting other people. And I just kind of want to share a little bit about what makes the Hudson Valley so special in terms of fiber. Um, let me think about that for a minute. I mean, I'm an upstate girl, but I grew up in the Finger Lakes. Right. So I grew up more in dairy... When I grew up, it was dairy country for sure. I mean, on my little rural road, there were, I think every house had a connection to a dairy farm if they weren't a dairy farm. Either that or they were related to me. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that, was the kind of, that was the kind of time that I grew up. And there really were no sheep farmers or, or llama or alpaca or anything like that growing up. But... I grew up, you know, I'm typical. My grandmother taught me how to knit. And, you know, and I was always watching knitting and crocheting with my grandmothers and my great grandmothers. So always kind of grew up around fiber. Mm. And moving to the Hudson Valley, it was like, I can remember uh, waiting to go on the Washington County farm tour. Oh, my goodness. Way back before I started the shop. Maybe it was around that same time. And my sister had come with me, and we were so excited. We couldn't sleep. <laughs> That's awesome. It was just, uh, I mean, and we used to go to uh, the Sheep and Wool Festival in Rhinebeck even before that, when you would get there early, and they'd say, oh, come on in, you know, there's no problem. There was no line, you know? And going back even farther, we would go to the state fair, and my dad was also a John Deere dealer, besides growing oh, okay. on a dairy farm. So I have some farming roots. Yeah. And we would spend so much time at the state fair, and I just loved being around the animals. And, and the sheep were always kind of fascinating. So moving to the Hudson Valley, um, it's beautiful here. I mean, the Finger Lake yeah. had their beauty, and I forget about what it's like there until I go home to visit. But the Hudson Valley also has a Another New York is wonderful because every yeah. part of the state has a very different kind of beauty to it. Mm. And the Hudson Valley is just beautiful. And I, I don't know. I just There's just something that just calls me with the fiber and, and with the animals. I love visiting the farms. Um, 
I'm not necessarily really comfortable and know what to do with sheep, but they're, I don't know, they're just it's fascinating being with the animals. If I were younger, <laughs> if I were younger, I would do life in another way. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we only have one life at least that I can remember. Um and I don't think I've done it too badly this time around, but there's, you know, there's so many things to, how can you be bored in life? There's so many wonderful things to do. Yeah. Yeah. I think every time I get bored, I like add another thing that I can't take on. Yeah, you know what I mean? You, I, <laughs> I don't know if you ever saw any old Ed Sullivan reruns, but he always had people that used to spin plates. I don't know. Did you ever see plate spinners? Oh Yeah. <laughs> And I mm-hmm. always like I always compare my life to a plate spinner where he just added one too many plates and they all fall down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I hear yeah. that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy thing to do. Um, but the other thing, and I think that, you know, from growing up on a farm too, I still understand how difficult and expensive it can be. And I, I don't think people realize what goes into being a farmer it looks so romantic Mm. Um, right you know um i can just remember a little while ago when i went up to a photo shoot to uh, stone ledge Mm -hmm. and i'm driving up you know getting off the thruway and finally driving through that part of the hudson valley and it's like oh i so miss this piece of my life it's just Oh, to be back on a farm, it's like, oh my God, no way, the hard work. I forget, you forget about that part, you know? Yeah. And so, a couple of the interviews that I've done on the Hudson Valley Textile Project podcast uh, that I think are very telling and that everyone should understand is like, uh, I talked to Tammy White about the cost of farm yarn and everything that goes into that skein of yarn that you see. It's not commercial yarn that's maybe imported from South America or even China or from another country or even something that's purchased in bulk by a commercial company from Lord knows where, even, you know, sustainably purchased. But it's not the same. It's there's it's so much more expensive and um things that you don't think about I mean even it's like you know Tammy and I tried tried to delineate a lot of this and then she also had a, a, a an article that came out in maybe it was Taproot one of the, about the cost of farm yarn and then mm-hmm. you start thinking about okay the feed the vet bills the this but it's like the gasoline to get to the to the to them, or to right? pick up the 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 feed. There's so many things, and so to pay thirty dollars for a skein of yarn still doesn't even cover the entire cost of things. You put so much labor, even in your, when you own your own business. But the two of you own your own business. You can't get paid for your hours for your time. Right. Yeah. You know, that's just part of your passion. That's just, that's your giveaway. But, you know, talking with Tammy about how how you make up that maybe $5, $10 a skein difference in what it really costs and what she has to do 
with agritourism and other events that she has to do. And then you think about the pandemic and how that's affected agritourism and events. Right. It's very scary. How do these farms make it? Or talking with, with Donna Cavacos and fiber is a much smaller part of her farm where the CSA and the food part is the large part of their farm but getting people to work on the farm so she has some local people but she also has uh, immigrant uh, coming in legally to work and all of the regulations and all of the costs as, as consumers we don't understand any of this unless you really talk to someone Right. And, and how we hear the negative side of everything so much in the, on the news, I think about immigrants coming in to work on farms, where they're like family with Donna. They come in every year. Yeah, They know these people. They keep in touch with them all year long. It's, I don't know, it's things that I think that need to be highlighted, and that's what I try to do with the Hudson Valley podcast. Yeah, and I think that's super important in all aspects. I mean, even in the weaving community, we are trying to talk about the transparency of what goes into making a product. It's not just, I'm sitting down at a loom and something magically appears. It's like, I have to source the materials. I want to make sure that it's actually natural, that it's that it's sustainable, and also trying to find the right budget for us because not i mean right now feasibly i couldn't support a farmer and buy all hudson valley yarn just because we were at a stage where we couldn't do that but in the future that's something that we're willing to work towards and also to be able to work with a farmer to really say hey we may not be able to afford this now but maybe we can work at a deal Mm -hmm. where we make value-added product for you and we get a little kickback or whatever. So it is, it's a really interesting process to really see all of it kind of come together and to be able to explain it to the consumer because they're so used to the commercial product where it's done in such mass quantities that the cost isn't put back onto the customer. Or just what you just said, the time you spend sourcing and evaluating, you spend a lot of time doing that, and, and you're never, ever paid back for that time. No. Yeah, not to mention sampling. Yep. Putting a warp on, realizing it's too short because it didn't do what you thought it would do, and now you have to make a new warp. So, <laughs> it, you know, it's it's like sort of that build-up to the final, if only making a blanket entailed making a blanket you know what i mean exactly 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 um and it's just kind of a funny little little anecdote i have a four and a half year old grandson and he's very into you may cut some of this out but he's very uh, into chess chess these days yeah and believe it or not and so he and i were playing a, a, a chess match and his grandfather came by my husband came by and he said oh grandpa you need to practice i'm going to make you a practice board so he gets out his scissors and he cuts little squares and i could see the problem coming so he makes eight across and then he starts to do the next row and of course the squares are different sizes because he's four and a half years old right 
So the, so the next morning, he's having a meltdown. And it's because this chessboard is not working out. Mm-hmm. So his, his dad has to have a talk with him about the learning process. And we have to make mistakes and things don't always work out the first time. And it's like, that's a lifelong learning issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Things don't ever work out the first time when you're trying to create. No. They just don't. Yeah, they even don't. with tons of examples of what we could have made in the past, like piles of samples, bins of samples, boxes of samples strewn about our studio, we still always end up finding a way to create some kind of new product that we don't have any experience with, that we have to start that whole process over again. Yeah. And like with with me... Um like when I'm, you know, I have like a standard product that I make, like a 20 by 20 sheet. And I really have to say that those 20 by 20 sheets, there's an inch tolerance because, as you know, different fibers react differently. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes when they go through the felt machine, they stretch and sometimes they shrink. <laughs> and I frequently don't know what I'm getting. So Lord only knows what I'm going to end up with. Right. But all of that, but all of that is is the. I like to compare local fiber to vintage wine. You know, you never really quite know what you're going to get, and that's the charm. You could be the charm and the curse, and I don't like to look at it as the curse. I think it's all the charm. It's, yeah. It's um. Yeah. So. So I think if uh, circling back to the cost of local fiber. I think that it is um, an interesting thing for us uh, owning a business weaving that we have we can see more customers coming to us now saying I want to do this project but I want it to be sustainable or I want to know who it's supporting I want some kind of story behind this particular piece or this collection of pieces that you're making for me and it's interesting to see there's a good chunk we've seen of those people that are very much into that until they hear how much it's going to cost them and then they say okay well maybe let's sustainably source it this will start there because i think it is um you don't want to well at least we don't want to go to a farmer and be like hey we've got this project but we can't pay this amount can we like work something out where we already know from our own experiences that they're probably not asking as much as they actually need already. Mm-hmm. And we it we feel bad trying to like get a lower price. So when we do that kind of stuff, we have to be sort of careful with the uh, sourcing material side, but also really truly explain to the customer that's coming to us looking for something like that what is entailed and we have a lot of education to do on our side as well sort of going up the supply chain yeah it's you know and if and i have the same issues at the shop also when someone wants to come in and i'm in my one room in the back where i have like a big teaching table that's where most of my local i kind of try to keep that all local and i do carry a couple other farmers yarns and another local hand dyer who uses local yarn 
And I guess if I can at least get people, if everybody that came into my shop made a hat or mittens out of local yarn, if they start with smaller projects, that would be amazing. Yeah. I mean, um, and I also feel that on a couple of the retreats that I've done where people have visited farms to see a little bit about this, I've converted a little bit of the people to use local yarns. I mean, yarns in the Hudson Valley mostly are not the kind that you're going to wear around your neck. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, the Hudson Valley is a little bit harsher climate, a little bit tougher for sheep. You need a hardier sheep in most cases, unless you're really going to treat your sheep like babies, maybe like you're really like your children. I mean, all of the farmers in the Hudson Valley that I have visited really, I mean, they, their sheep are really well, well cared for, but right. I think the the softer sheep really need to be coated and really, really well taken care of. Um, and yeah. I know I didn't say that right, and somebody's probably going to hear that and say she doesn't know what she's talking about. But, <laughs> um, well, I it, I get what you're saying. Yeah, that's good to hear. <laughs> but um, you know, if you make the right sweater, you it's just with the same thing. You, you, certain yarns and certain wools and fibers are good for various things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other piece of that is that in New York State also, and I'm really bouncing around a lot, but these things, if I don't say them, they fall out of my head forever. But, uh, and if you go into like Ab in the Classroom or you go into different kind of uh, areas in, in education in New York State, food has come a long way. Farm to table has come a long way. Fiber has not. So we need to at least strive to get to that place where food is. People understand people understand about what they put into their bodies. Now people need to understand what they're putting on their bodies. Mm. Yeah. It's kind of the fiber community kind of needs a revolution a little bit. Mm-hmm. I know that the knitters have really taken charge and have kept the yarn companies alive, knitters and crocheters, because that's an easily accessible craft for a lot of people. And yes. us as weavers have them to thank for having like any suppliers left in the U.S. Yeah. Because it all, any anything that we could have gotten on cones or anything a lot of it's now made in Europe or in Asian countries. So it's challenging. Oh, I just totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> but, oh my goodness, you're so much younger. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think it's important to share this information and keep it open so that people actually know what they're getting into. And even just having a small project to latch on to, mm. it makes a huge impact. Yes. Well, I know. I'm, I, I wish you two were closer to me. And I really need to find someone. First, well, there's, that would be good and bad. Because I love every craft where you use yarn. I could use the same yarn knitting. And it would look differently if it were crocheted, and it will look differently woven. And right. I, I love woven pieces. I just can't afford that extra plate spinning. 
Right. <laughs> but, you know, I have had, I have some rigid huddle looms in the shop because it's a great way for knitters to use up extra yarn. Yeah. And to figure out just more about fiber. And I just can't seem to get a weaving teacher to stay or if I get a weaving teacher, then she wants to do too much. She wants to really go into all about weaving and knitters. You know, you're not going to get someone interested by going into the entire spectrum. They just kind of want to like dip their toes into it. Mm. Yeah. See, and now I lost my train of thought. No, uh, but... Oh, you were asking <laughs> Tegan if she wanted to come teach for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so... Who knows? Maybe when this is all over, maybe we'll get you to come down to do something. That might be kind of fun. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. I would love yeah. to do that. Yeah. And to explain it, just to see that, I don't know. Like I say, weaving, weaving is, uh, I don't know. I just love those woven pieces. I yeah. really do. And, and again, just small pieces. Mm. Uh, you know, it's just like using, um, uh, a hat or mittens, something small that people can really, it, that they could afford to do. Right. Yeah. And I think something also to bring up, like in light of the Black Lives Matter movement and the protests that are going on, is that being in a position of craft and using local yarn is really a point of privilege. And to be able to make it accessible in these smaller amounts really reaches out to a much wider community than it could before. Right. Right. And I, I have reflected so much during this time that I am so privileged where I live mm-hmm. how the, the the track that my life has taken it nece- doesn't necessarily have to do with everything I've done it has to do with where I landed when I was born right mm-hmm. you know um, but where I live I, I feel so privileged to be here yeah. And to be able to take advantage of the beauty and the resources that we have. Yeah. Um, and as you say, if we, what we can share, again, is a privilege. It is. And I think that is something that we're starting to take ownership of ourselves and really trying to make information accessible to way more people than it could before and to have our love of fiber reach out to all different avenues so it's exciting it is very exciting and you know there's always the pandemic and our uh quarantining our isolation has been difficult but out of something difficult and challenging always comes something good yeah Mm. you know um so i'm really hoping that we're seeing growth in 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 our thought and in our sharing and i think that um we're trying to do that with the textile project yeah eric is working really hard on on helping uh our farmers um and our makers have a more of a presence the textile project is in the process of setting up an advisory council nice uh, to 
help us take help us further our vision yeah widen our vision further our vision so where do you where do you see the future of the hudson valley textile project going um i would like to see as we talked about i, I would like to see uh, the powers that be take more of a, an interest in local fiber mm -hmm. and our community taking more ownership of local fiber um, and a lot of it has to do with education and and widening our community um, bringing in it's funny you know when you start to increase that the the fiber chain then no matter what you do in life you increase the demand and then oops the supply isn't there and it's kind of this stepwise process that you have to take and we need young people too we need young farmers and they yeah. are out there and we need uh we need to connect all these people we need I don't know. We need a lot. We need a lot of support, a lot of community activity, and uh, I'm hoping that the textile project can contribute a lot to that. Cool. I don't know if that made any sense, but no, that yeah. was great. A little bit. Yeah. So, if somebody was interested in getting involved with the textile project, what is something that you would tell them to do? First of all, to go to the website hbtextileproject.org. Mm -hmm. If you can join us, that would be fabulous in becoming a member. And we do know that uh, right now it may be difficult to financially pay for a full membership, although it's not expensive. I think it's about $75 a year now. Yep. Yeah. But because of our philosophy is we're our numbers and our membership is more important to us than that $75. That said, we can't do what we want to do without funds. Right. So if you can pay a little bit of that membership, that is fabulous. If you feel like you don't want to become a member, that's okay. You can still donate some, some funds. You can follow us on, uh, Facebook, on Instagram, uh, sign up for our newsletter to see what we're doing and maybe find a way that you do want to support or participate. Yeah. Yeah, and, now uh, you can even go to the website and look through a directory of our members to see the things that they're making. And if you don't necessarily have the money or want to support us as an organization, you please go support our members. Exactly, exactly. So, and that is a work in progress and our members, this is a new project basically that Eric has also been working on feverishly to get the marketplace up and running. And, you know, if you go to it today, you'll see X number of members and you go to it next week, you'll see more members. So it's growing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really... It's a really cool project because that's it's something that I've always been interested in since I was in college. I was like traveling back home and getting local fleeces to do my art projects with. 
but I never, I didn't have the access to know what farmers to go to or who had what, who was making what. I, through the textile project, I've met so many more weavers that mm. I wouldn't have otherwise have met. And it's really connecting a lot of people together. And it's also encouraging me as a designer to start suggesting local fiber or suggesting more sustainable practices to my clients who may not be in the Hudson Valley, but who still want to support that supply chain. Yes. And, and as we've said, you don't have to, you, everything you do doesn't have to be and really can't be part of that local supply chain. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I have a lot of, I have a lot of yarns in my shop that are commercial that are not sustainable but I feel like I need to do that, even even if, as I go, I, I can become more uh, part of the supply chain. I need that piece to get people to move from the big, big box stores into online. It's a kind of a progression. And as people come into the shop, I see how they progress. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's part of education. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's hard for um, sometimes for somebody to sort of reckon with where you in order to make some of these like bigger sweeping changes, I think even for us, like where we have to order um, like the wool that we really use a lot of is New Zealand wool because Mm -hmm. it's it's inexpensive enough that we can purchase it and then make products that we can sell where we're not losing money. And while we have that New Zealand wool that we're purchasing, we also try to offer a few things in the local, you know, from the local supply chain Mm -hmm. in wool. And I think that doing that is a good way to say to a customer at a show or a customer on the phone or whatever, like this option here is not as supporting of our local environment, but we still make it and you know it's supporting us you purchasing it and this here is much more expensive but this supports the people in this area mm-hmm. so and try a little bit of it yeah yeah absolutely yeah like here's a small yeah. thing like here's a pillow made out of it that's affordable and then mm-hmm. if you, re- you take this home see what you think and then next year come back to the show and buy a blanket out of it Exactly. And the other thing that we're really fortunate in the Hudson Valley is we have a mill. Yes. I mean, Battenkill Fiber is, by having that mill here, we do have a more fiber available. You have fiber available on cones. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> you know, um, and we can uh, go to the mill and say hey you know let's let's work out i really want this kind of a combination or i want this way what can we do um and as a matter of fact before you know there has to be some kind of a code word before pre-pandemic and post-pandemic right now but pre-pandemic mary jean and i were going to be talking at we were going to be back up we had uh Proposed, and she had been proposing for a couple of years at our trade show to do something how local 
how yarn shops need to carry some local yarn mm. and it was, no one ever listened to either of us about this and because the trade show was really run by large commercial companies right but i did get the ear this last year of the president who i knew and she was at rhinebeck at the cheap and wool festival this last year and i caught her ear and she was in the batten kill fiber booth and she talked with mary jean and she had invited us to uh be part of a panel mm-hmm. for this very discussion excellent and of course it never happened but I see that little piece of the puzzle. It's a slow process, and we can't get impatient with it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and I really don't think that there's, um, like, large companies have anything to be afraid of because it's the, the amount of local fiber that there is, at least right now, it, there's not even enough to make a dent in one of those large companies. Exactly. And Mary G and I have talked about that. About that. It's just, you know... We can't. There's going to be a point where she just can't keep up with the with the demand because mm. we need more sheep <laughs> right. and alpacas. You know, right. we need more fiber. But that's a good thing. And we yeah. need and we need and we need young people. I mean, I've visited mills, and people in the mills are my age and older. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. you know. So there's a lot to be done in our supply chain, but. I do see glimmers of change, and that's wonderful. Yeah, slow and steady. Yeah. Yep, exactly, exactly. So uh, we'll keep working on that supply chain. Yeah. 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 But Do you want to uh, ask? The- you know, I we usually ask weavers Uh-oh. their biggest <laughs> weaving mistake, and we ask people who work with weavers their, like, a mistake that they made working with weavers i'm not sure like you're in an organization and it's not totally focused around weaving so i'm not sure what the appropriate um thing w- like question would be but i maybe... can tell you an answer okay okay I can awesome. tell you an answer <laughs> you don't have to ask me when i first opened my shop you know, I had different reps come, you know, and sell me their wares. And this one rep told me, oh, you need to carry 10 to 20% of yarns that you don't like, but somebody likes them and you need to have them. What a mistake. I can't sell anything I don't like. Right. I mean, that is going to stay on the shelf forever. So that was my biggest mistake I made when I opened my shop was to put in things I don't like. That's interesting. I think that's a testament to anybody selling anything. Yeah. Is make something or carry something that you like because it's so much easier to sell something that you're passionate about. Exactly. Or, yeah, why do you want anything in your life that you really don't care for? Mm. Right. Am I going to eat or cook 10% of the food I don't like? <laughs> no. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's an interesting yeah. thing because I do from uh, like my marketing background, I do mm-hmm. see where that could be useful if you have like a plan for it. Mm-hmm. Like get the yeah. people in for those things and then sort of switch them to the things that you like. And... I can see like the uh, the marketing behind that, and right. I can also see how that could be a really good sales tool for somebody who's trying to maybe sell garbage product 
you know, that nobody likes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was funny because my, my son was in, um, he was a marketing and Spanish major. And every time we would visit him in California, of course, I'd have to say, oh, guys, got to stop or you got to go over here because there's a yarn shop. You know, I'd have to visit everything. Mm-hmm. So it was my husband and my son and myself. And so I said, I'm just going to go in here just for just for a, a couple minutes. And I turn around and they're following me in. It's like, what is going on here, you know? So I'm in there and I'm looking around and my son comes over to me and he, and he says, they've lost my business. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> and he said, mom, we've been in here 10 minutes. No one has said anything to us. Yeah. Mm. I said, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's that community, you know, it's that, you know, um, yeah, that was just really a funny little anecdote, but, you know, about marketing. He was so, and, and I, and I'm not, I'm not a good seller. And my customers, my really close friends, customers tell me this all the time that I'm really horrible at selling because, (laughs) you know, They'll say something and I'll say, you got that at home. (laughs) Here's that. (laughs) I know what you have at home. Or don't buy that tool. You don't want that. Save your money for yarn. (laughs) See, that's what made me really terrible in retail. When I worked in retail shops, I'd be like, you were just in here last week and bought a new pair of shoes. You don't need another pair. Yeah. (laughs) Like, save your money. Like, come back when there's a sale. I used to get in trouble so much for that. But it's like, it's the honest truth. And I think customers appreciate that. It's the community building. And you are remembering what they've done. You're showing care and what they're doing. So when we have return customers come into our booth... I, I'm more excited because I'm like, oh, you bought this blanket last year. Or mm. I remember you bought these towels. How are they holding up? What mm-hmm. are you interested in now? Because instead of trying to sell somebody something that I know they don't need, it's right. now turned into they know they appreciate the product. They understand what goes into it and on their own have come in and want to purchase something else. And it's I'm turned into a relationship. It's mm-hmm. turned into a relationship, which is totally different. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting you say that about going into yarn shops while you're traveling because we went down to um, the Smoky Mountains with my dad a few years ago. And we, I don't know how we found it. I think, you were you looking stuff up? Yes. Yeah. We found a little yarn shop that was like tucked in like the upstairs on the back side of like a little strip building, like just set, you know, back off the road unassumingly. And mm-hmm. we went in there, and there was some really awesome stuff. They had, like, an old frame loom, like, out of an attic or a barn set up in there. And um, they they sold all sorts of different materials. It was really a little gem. And we actually found there um, a material that it, it took me, like, a year to hunt down. But I finally found it, and I now use it for rugs. And if we hadn't, like, gone in there and checked that place out, or Tegan hadn't been like constantly on the lookout. You never know what you can find or what you'll be missing by not sort of exploring that kind of stuff while you're traveling to see, like, because I think that there's uh, vast differences um, across like communities in what yarn shops mm-hmm. carry and like what 
sort of weaving supplies are available and from who because like how do you know that there's not like a little like some guy working out of his garage creating amazing tools in like Arizona somewhere you know that's what that's what I miss about I would always go to the trade show every year and actually it's now the, the organization is, has probably met its demise this year was just a straw that broke the camel's back mm. because I think it's been out of touch with a lot of the artisanal movement yeah but to connect with people in different parts of the country and to see different things to be recharged and and you know regenerate your creativity not that i'm that creative a person but just to be inspired and to just recharge and say oh that is something i never thought of or yeah, you you need to travel, you need to be open, and, and you need to explore. Mm. Yeah. And I think one of the ways we were sort of ac- accomplishing that was through going to shows and just sort of making the shows farther and farther away from home and mm-hmm. sort of forcing ourselves into that travel a little bit more. I mean, that was sort of one of the, um, one of the things that uh, we sort of set out with, with the business. It's yeah. like, let's... We want to travel, so let's make this a vehicle for that. So, um, you know, until this year, it was working out great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and and it will work out again somehow. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, I had gone to the to the craft show in Baltimore, the American Craft Council show, where which is, like, I'm just so impressed that you guys are, you know, part of that because I know what is at that show. That's yeah. a very dangerous show for me to go to. I mean, my husband bought, I went there for one particular item, a person that I had met at another show. And I wanted, person that I had met at another show was wearing something that this other person had made. Mm. You know, the connections are so convoluted sometimes, mm. but they all come back in a circle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went, that's why I went there. And then my husband bought a couple of other things for me. And he said something, I said, let's get out of here. We have no more money mm-hmm. <laughs> because the things there are so beautiful. And then, so you were going to go there again, and then you were going to go to the Atlanta show, which probably would be very different in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. We were really excited to, um, to go to the Atlanta show and see the sort of market differences between there mm-hmm. and Baltimore. And but that the- will happen again. Yeah, for sure. And when it does happen again, we'll definitely go. Yeah. 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 So kind of to put a nice bow on things, I always ask this question, which is what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? It could be business related, life related, just something that really sticks with you. My mom gave me a lot of great advice. My mom passed away this year. At 102. Wow. Oh, did I tell you, on a side note, um, my grandmother is 96 this year, and she just went and bought herself a nice new car. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that was my mom. Yep. (laughs) But she always gave me really nice little pieces of advice. And what always rings true to me is never forget what it was like to be young. Mm. Yeah. And she told me that when my first child was born. But 
it rings true in so many parts of life. Yeah. And it's good to, I mean, we're in the boat right now of we're the young people that's coming Mm -hmm. up and everyone, it seems like everyone is excited to talk to us because we're young. So we're Mm -hmm. trying to get that momentum and the connections going. So when we are the older generation and the younger generation is coming up behind us, we can do the same thing for them. Like we remember what it's like starting out and putting in the hours, putting in the work and we want to be able to turn around and help other people do the same thing. Yeah, exactly. So it's like even, even you know, like when you raise your children, don't forget how important things were when you were 10, when you were 15, mm-hmm. right? Know, that kind of thing. But, but also, you know, when you're working through life, don't forget how hard it was. Yeah. Don't forget how... Um, see this train of thought don't forget what it was like to remember things Mm. (laughs) (laughs) you know just you know when you're at the point where things aren't exciting anymore or you've had i can remember my dad saying you know in his store it was like he couldn't get past microfiche that was it he was done he didn't want (laughs) anything to do with computers you know Mm -hmm. and you know and i'm kind of at the point where you know zoom may be my limit but don't forget what it was like to be excited about what's new and exciting, you know? Right. So, yeah, yeah. that's my piece of advice. I, cool. th- I can relate to that because, um, let's so probably, uh, we, I graduated college in 2011, mm-hmm. right? And then went, went right to work. For my first job was, um, I was full-time running a screen printing operation out of the back of a print shop and Mm -hmm. I worked for the guy who ran the print shop and it was a lot of fun and ultimately didn't work out for a myriad of reasons Um, and then I went right out of there into a junior graphic designer job based on my um, my degree and I worked my way from in seven years from a junior graphic designer to a senior designer and developer at that company as things opened up and demands changed and whatnot for the department. And then I, w- I was getting towards the last year or so, and I saw the writing on the wall that the marketing department was going to be shut down. And so I was just like riding it out at the end. But... Um, I sort of realized and started really thinking through like what was it that I felt inspired about when I was younger and how can I find that same like how can I find a thing that gives me that same inspiration today and it took me probably like three years to like really figure that out and I think it took so long because I just had the creativity beaten out of me by you know the schooling system and then by a job that didn't want creativity but i'm just stopping uh, you from tapping smacking the table um (laughs) yeah and and then probably by just making ends meet keeping yeah daily activity you know life's daily activities get in the way of creativity and and inspiration right absolutely yeah and so now when i when i was uh joyously freed of that position um, I went to work for Deegan, and here we are two years later, and uh, cranking away at the business and doing this now because of COVID and all of the associated 
things happening with it. Um, so I yeah I I really uh, relate to that advice a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my mom gave me a lot of good advice. She's she was a good mom, and I dreamt about her last night, so she's still a good mom. Yeah, good. absolutely. We have a cardinal that lives here around the house, so we always say hello to my mother. Nice. Yep. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Well, that I think was perfect. That was great. This was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank you so much for chatting with us. I think it's it's a what we're trying to do with this podcast is something that you're similarly doing with yours. Is we want to open up conversations with, Mm -hmm. with our suppliers, our supply chain, and really build those connections. And even with professional weavers, there's like these weird little pockets of groups that don't communicate. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to bring them together so we can all share communal knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, just, well, it's like Sten said the other day, you know, it's, well, it's kind of like Lowe's and Home Depot are always next to each other and they're next to each other for a reason. Yeah. You know, uh, I was in South America one time, and in um, I think it was in Buenos Aires, there were ten or twelve yarn shops within like two blocks. Whoa! I mean, I've never seen anything like it, and each one was different. That's hmm. cool. It is yeah. cool. Yeah, and you know, it was like this little amazing gold mine, but. It, it was interesting and it's just an example of you know when you're connected with community it's good for everybody mm-hmm. yeah yeah and i mean if we lift each other up then we lift the whole group up yeah it's so hard for so many people to see it's not competitive <laughs> mm. yeah well because that's the other thing it's like i'm doing the thing that i'm really good at and tegan's doing the things she's really good at like when it comes to weaving and everybody else is really good at other aspects of weaving. And then if somebody's better than me at it, well, then that just means I have to step my game up or pick a different thing to do. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or do you find... The, what I find really hard with, like, the Internet, because I think so ingrained in us growing up, you know, it's like, oh, if I learn something new and exciting, I really want to keep it to myself kind of thing because I want to own it. I want it to be mine. And it's like to let go of that feeling and to really um, share all of our knowledge. And yet at the same time, you know, like you go on the internet and it's like, she's doing that. I need to be doing that. Or I need to be doing this. Or this is, and it's like you say, you, you need to like, just take that step back do what you love, do what you do best, and just mm. do your thing. Yeah. Yeah, and then you'll enjoy your work more, you'll do better mm-hmm. work, you'll get better at it faster, because you just sort yeah. of get lost in it, and create more, and do more, and, yeah, and get I, better. Yeah I, find it, yeah, I find it really hard to, to let go of that feeling sometimes, like, oh, I'm so jealous of her shop, or I'm so, mm. you know, it's like, just, hey, you know, this is the way it is. This is who I am, and this is what I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I've had to keep telling myself that because like I'll see somebody get like something that I wanted, and I'm like, oh, why didn't why didn't that happen to me? I work just as hard, and it's like, well, we're doing different stuff. Mm. We're yeah. existing yeah. in the same world, doing different things. So well, and it's funny because this is exactly how you started weaving. You started weaving on a loom that was way too big, 
right next to someone who already knew how to weave and tried to keep up. Yeah. Right. So it's like this is a long-standing pattern. This is this is basically how I function as a human. Is I see I want to do something, so I'm gonna mm-hmm. do it, and I try to keep up with the person who really knows what they're doing. <laughs> and inevitably, it fails the first three or four times, but then I start to understand why it fails, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. I learn from my mistakes and I grow. And yeah, it's just like. You get tired after a while. You just want to sit down and do something. You want yeah. it to come out. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's Absolutely. like my four and a half year old grandson, right? <laughs> yes. Cutting those squares out and they're not matched yeah. up right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I, when you were telling that story, I was like, man, I feel like that is something exactly what I did. My mom was making me a quilt and said, okay, I want you to cut out the squares. And me being me, and I'm like, oh, I'll cut one square and then put it on top of the fabric and cut out the next one. And then put those on top and just keep stat. They were all a different size. Came out it's like, like a the pyramid. movie Multiplicity, if you ever saw that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Clones. Yep. yep. So, I was, so that was my lesson in maybe you should have a pattern. Yes. <laughs> you still haven't learned. I still don't. <laughs> yeah, sometimes we are what we are and it's the way we it's yeah. it's the way we operate. But mm-hmm. to try to control those feelings of community. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. It's that competitiveness. Some you know, I think I'm a little bit more competitive than what I want to uh admit to. <laughs> I'm I'm super competitive, and poor Eric has to put up with it because he's the only other person I'm competing with right now. Yeah. Well, we were going to do something the other day, and I was like, want a race to figure it out? Oh, I know what it was. It was double we're, weave. Yeah, so we're, we're designing a blanket right now. Or no, not a blanket, curtains. We're designing curtains right now that have three layers to them. So we're weaving okay. three layers on the loom. And you have to tack the middle layer into the top and bottom so that when it hangs, it hangs evenly. And they don't get all wonky and weird. And okay. so we were sitting outside on the porch and I had a piece of graph paper and I was explaining it to Tegan, like how it worked. And um, and she's like, oh, okay, I get it now. And I was like, all right, now we got to race to see who can get it the fastest. <laughs> Who can get the drawdown? And I said no. She didn't. She didn't. She didn't put like a, a trip wire or anything out there for you, right? So that no. she could get there first. No, I actually wrote a program that did it, so I'm. I won. Yeah, you. That I was also at the That's point. That's cheating. That's cheating. Right. <laughs> well, she's using software. Right, but I'm using weaving software that doesn't do things for me. Right. <laughs> anyway. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. And uh, we'll be talking soon. Yeah. I I got some ideas for uh, an HVTP fashion show after this conversation. Like, ooh, if we can showcase, like, if we're focusing on just the yarns from the Hudson Valley Mm -hmm. and their special qualities and really make garments that showcase those qualities, like coats and outerwear or anything like that fisherman's sweaters i think could be really cool yeah and if we're still virtual we could do a magazine right eric absolutely <laughs> oh I know yeah i can do that i know a guy yeah. who can do that and who would do a great job <laughs> yeah 
All right. Well, we'll let you. We'll let you go. Yeah. Okay. And but, uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Thank this you. was great. That has really inspired me to start devoting more time researching and using local fiber. For sure. And if you want to learn more, check out HVTP's podcast, Common Threads. Specifically, check out the episodes with Deborah from Stoneledge Farm and Tammy White. They're really quite eye-opening about the cost and what goes into building a sustainable uh, yarn line. A special thank you again to our patron this week, Susan. Your support of the podcast means the world to us. Another thank you goes out to Rawhead the Recluse for providing music for our podcast. Find him at rawheadtherecluse.bandcamp.com. Don't forget to send your questions to hello at proweaverpod.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe now. It will help us reach more weavers and people who are passionate about hand-created textiles. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Professional Weaver Society. And you can get full show notes at proweaverpod.com. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Professional Weaver Podcast. We look forward to sharing more episodes with you each Friday. Bye. Bye.